1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. I want to read verses 3 and 4 one more time. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Lord, this message of good news couldn't come at a better time. And I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. And yet, this morning, it also feels as though it could not have come at a better time. For any and everyone, Lord, who has ever heard and accepted the gospel, it could not have come at a better time. The fact that you not only spoke this message, but brought its meaning. That, Lord Jesus, you lived out this message before us. And then gave it to us. This is, Lord, the most wonderful Blessing the most remarkable offering of all history. And so we, before you this morning, we declare the gospel again today. And we pray that you would sow it deep in our hearts. May the gospel, Lord, be on our lips. May the gospel be in our thoughts. May the gospel enter into our conversations our interactions, our families, our friendships, our relationships. May we be a people who are about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got my first ever birthday card from Belgium this week. Very excited about that. I have it right here. It came from Valentine's family. In it they write, I'll share this with you, Dear Rick, we wish you a happy birthday and we hope that you'll receive our card on September 21st, which was my birthday. I got it on the 20th, so that was a little disappointing. <laughs> Have a nice day, surrounded by your big family. Valentine could play you our, our, your favorite songs on a guitar for the occasion, smiley face. She still has yet to do that. We're working on it. With all our friendship and gratitude, Mark Thiebold and Micheline Fontaine. I thought, how cool is that? You know, a, a, a birthday card from Belgium. Birthday greetings. And it made my day. Now, I got some other cards and, and other things <clears throat> for my birthday. But that, it was just, I don't know why, but for me, it, it just, across the Atlantic, it made a difference. It was very cool of them to, to do that. And it got me thinking. 2,025 years ago, another birthday greeting was written. Actually, it was inscribed in stone because it was intended to last. It's called the Priene Inscription. Let me read it to you. It reads, written 9 B.C., a birthday greeting for Augustus Caesar. It reads as follows. 
Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. You see, the the Romans believed Augustus Caesar to be a god. And so worshipped him as such. One of the big problems in the early church was they refused to bow the knee to Augustus. They refused to bend the knee to the Caesars. And recognize these men as gods. But what caught my attention in reading this, the God Augustus, as written, was the beginning of the good tidings. The word good tidings is a word you know. Euangelion in the Greek, evangelism in our English. The gospel. It is the word for gospel. Good tidings. Euangelion. Anytime you see the word gospel written in the New Testament scriptures, it's euangelion. I love how Luke begins his gospel his uh, writing, his account of the life of Christ, because he, he piggybacks, I think, right off of this prying inscription that says the God Augustus was the beginning of good tidings. Not so. Luke says in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, that the angel said unto the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, euangelion of great joy, which is megascara. In other words, mega gladness. I bring you big gladness of great joy. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke says while Augustus was on the throne, the real good tidings came in the person of Jesus and at his birth. I think that Mark also was writing an intentional contrast to that prying inscription for Augustus' loop, Caesar. And he wrote in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel. The Hebrew equivalent of that Greek word, euangelion, of gospel, is basar. Basar is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures and speaks of a message that evokes great joy, glad tidings. In other words, the gospel is a message. It is something to be shared. It is a word to be spoken, and it is a word of good news, and Jesus launched his ministry with it. He quoted Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 and a half, half of the second verse. And he said in Luke 4:18, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." Well, the poor. Oh, so it really wasn't for the rich? No, we're all poor. If you are a human being, you are poor without the gospel. And so Jesus said, I was sent to preach the gospel to the poor, as Isaiah had prophesied. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's the work of the gospel. You understand how the gospel functions, what it is supposed to do, what is the upshot or the result of it. Read Isaiah 61. Listen to Jesus' words describing what He came to accomplish. The good news. 
Man, don't ritualize it. Don't religiosize it. Don't traditionalize it. The Gospel is far bigger than we realize. Psalm 96 verse 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim good tidings of salvation from day to day. The Gospel, ever on our lips, ever in our hearts, constantly shared among us and to those who have never heard it before. So where has the church slowed down? Why in the church are we not sharers, purveyors, givers, bringers of the Gospel? Is it perhaps that we don't get it? Ask any ten Christians, tell me what the Gospel is. I guarantee you a good half of them will have a hard time articulating it. Can you articulate the Gospel? I mean, if we can't even articulate the Gospel, it makes me wonder, where is all our teaching going? What are we spending our time doing? Let's start with the very basic premise that the Gospel is good news. I shouldn't even be able to say the word Gospel without a smile spreading out on my face. The same kind of smile that perhaps Luke and Rachel had when they got married on Tuesday. Congratulations. (laughs) That's just good news. Good news. You don't walk up to someone with good news and say, Hey, I've got great news for you. I have something of wonderful delight I need to share. This is going to make you so happy. Good news! We have the good news. The greatest news, the most joyful news ever given in the history of the world. Good news, the gospel. And by the way, it's still good news. It's still good news. It seems like today, there is wave upon wave upon wave of bad news that hits us. Every time you turn around. I was bowling with my kids last night when we got the word that he had been caught. The shooter. Five people. You all know this now. Shot and killed at Macy's. In the Cascade Mall. What? Charlotte, North Carolina. Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that's just this week. And we get hit again and again by bad news. I'm talking to another sister this morning who was struggling with this and just saying, this is the world that I am living in. A world of bad news. Waves of bad news, winds of violence and sorrow and confusion. But I remind you, in the midst of all of it, the waves and the winds still know His name. And there is still good news. And it's ours. It's been given to us. And to anyone who will receive it, anyone who will hear it, Anyone who will take hold of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not religion. It is a message of the most wonderful relationship ever offered to humanity. And Paul says, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. I make known to you. The phrase, make known. What he's saying is I proclaim it to you. See, he had already made it known. 
That's why there was a church in Corinth. He already made known to them, already spoke it to them, but now He does it again. I think we need that in the church. We need to make known the Gospel over and over and over. We need to proclaim it and re-proclaim it. To own it and re-own it. To continue to take it up and keep it ever before us. The good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. Which also you received. You pick up the mail. You sort through the envelopes. You take out the card. You slice the envelope open. Open up the card. And a smile spreads across your face. You read it. People in Belgium wish me a happy birthday. That's so cool. Rick, you really need to get out more. I know. (laughs) The good news of the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't take the card and do what most of us do. Toss it back on the stack. Oh, when I get a birthday card, typically I'll, I'll put it on my desk, you know, all like four of them. Put it up on my desk, you know, they wish me a happy birthday, that's great. Within a week or so, I take it, I memorialize it, I put it in a nice frame, put glass over it. I read it and reread it, you know, just, no, I do what most of you do, I throw it away. Ah, happy birthday, that's done, let's move on. Toss it out, you know, unless I'm looking for the check. You have been given the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Glad tidings. Don't throw it away. Don't set it aside. Don't toss it on the stack. No, you received it. You received it. Take it with you. The whole reason I brought this silly little card with me today is to say, take it with you. Take the gospel with you. Wherever you are, wherever you go, the word, and it's one of my favorite of all Greek words. It's up there. Top ten. Paralambano is the word. Try saying that. Paralambano. Paralambano. You're Greek scholars. Beautiful. Paralambano is a word that means to receive unto yourself or to take it along with you. Paul says you received it. I preached you the gospel which you also received. Take it with you. You take it into yourself. And by the way, the reason I like paralambano so much is it's the same exact word that Jesus uses to describe the rapture of the church. Jesus says, Matthew 24, 40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Scholars argue over that. They say, well, what if one of them is taken off into judgment? Huh? Huh? And the other one's left. The problem is that word taken is to take along with. To take, to receive unto. Jesus says one will be received unto as into himself. He will take along with him in the rapture of the church, the calling up of the church. But listen, if you have received the gospel, it means Jesus has received you. And he will receive you on that glorious day. He will take you along. And now Paul says, so you take the gospel along. Take it with you where you go, wherever you are. Taking along the gospel. And Paul then says, he says, which also you received, in which also you stand. Why? Because the gospel is solid. You can stand on it. 
You can put all your eggs in that one nest. You can take it to the bank. You are firm and secure on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will not fail you. It will not fail. Psalm 143 verse 10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Level ground. It's not toppling, not shaking, not coming apart at the seams. No, the gospel does not, cannot fail. The gospel is our foundation. Paul already said back in chapter 3 verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the heart of the Gospel. The Gospel is all about Him. Again, this is solid. The Gospel is a message that allows us not to waffle or waver. No uncertainty. No ambiguity about it. That's why we have the phrase, the Gospel truth. This is the Gospel truth. So it's something that you have received, Paul says, in which also you stand, by which, he says, also you are saved, or literally, by which you are also being saved. It's in the present tense. It's constant. You were saved, if and when you gave your life to Jesus, and you are being saved, right in this moment, your salvation is continual. And you will be saved when He calls you out of this world. By which you are being saved. Man, that's good news. That means I'm saved wherever I am. I'm saved right now. I will be saved forever. Mark and Susan Harris were in Macy's Friday night. Mark was at the uh, perfume counter talking to one of the victims. And then Susan came up to him and said, Hey, we need to hurry. We need to get over to the movie. And they left and went down to the movie, got in, sat down. The lights came up and they ushered everybody out of the theater because the shooting had just happened. And I was talking to Mark this morning. He said, man, it was just weird. It it was, I mean, I think for most of us, Burlington is so close to home. And then they catch the guy in Oak Harbor. And it's it's just all of a sudden this, this wave of bad news and uncertainty. Let me tell you, if Mark had been sitting on that counter, and if he had been taken out, saved, in that moment, As saved then as he was when he first accepted Jesus, as now he will be when Jesus calls him and or Susan and the rest of us home. Saved. No question. No doubt. The fear of the world right now is huge. Why? Because we don't know what's going to happen. What if we get shot? What if something goes wrong? What if a bomb goes off? What if I die? What if you do? Saved. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, if in fact you believe in Jesus, by which you are saved, Paul says. And you will be forevermore. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's dumb in the world. It truly is. You know that. People say, oh, that Christian stuff, I mean, they're so foolish. They're so lame. They're so uninformed. Paul says, yeah, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You are saved. If you believe in the gospel. Paul is saying your salvation is infinite. And he's also saying it's immediate. It is right now, today. Once you're born again, you know it. Don't you? 
Those of you who have been born again by the Gospel of Jesus, don't you know it? Didn't you immediately, when you gave your life, your heart to Jesus, everything changes. I'm saved now. I'm saved from myself. That, that was the first thing I realized. I am saved from this idiot, idiotus, in the Greek. Saved from myself. Saved from my sin. I'm saved from my failures. I'm saved from my past. Saved from my present. I'm saved from my fears, my worries, my loneliness, my weaknesses, my my foolish nature. I am saved right now. So let me ask you, why then are so many Christians dealing with depression? Why are so many despairing? I'm talking about Christians. Those who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Gospel. Really? I believe in the good news. Really? And, and, and all joking aside, when we read the good news, when we understand what this really means, why are we bummed out in this world ever? I understand circumstances come and go. I understand there is a godly sorrow. Truly, I get it. And, and it's not that you can't feel sorrow and feel you know, sadness. Of course, especially as we look at what's happening in this world. It is a sorrowful thing. But to let it reign over my life, when I know the gospel, when I have the singular message of good news, when this planet, going to hell in a handbasket, receives a message from God saying, all you got to do is say yes, and I'm saving you. Why do we despair? And I think it's because, well, Paul says, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if. If. The word is also translated as or because you hold fast the word. The problem, I believe, in the church today with Christians today who are despairing and worried and stressed out and depressed is we have not learned to hold fast the Word. Churches are not teaching the Word of God anymore. They're teaching 10-minute homilies. Yes, this is my soapbox. I get it. Teaching the truth of the Bible. Taking the time to go through it. We've been going through 1 Corinthians, and as I told you last week, this has been a stressful study for Rick. Because there is so much doctrine, so much correction, and so many hot buttons that the church does not deal with. 1 Corinthians 14, women should keep silent in the church. (gasps) Don't deal with that. You know, you need to dodge that bullet. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 14, speaking in tongues. <gasps> what does it mean? Well, it's not my tradition. Well, that's my tradition and we don't get along. All of these things throughout 1 Corinthians alone that are challenging. Well, let's just not talk about them. And then we don't have to deal with the truth. And we don't have to worry about challenge. And we can just come in and slide in there and have our happy couple of songs and our happy little 10-minute pep talk and then we'll go home and be depressed. Because it doesn't work. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you. What does it mean to hold fast the word? The King James says if you keep it in memory. That is not nearly strong enough a translation. To hold fast. 
Jesus describes it this way. He uses the same exact phrase, same word. He compared the heart receiving His Word, taking in His Word, to different soils receiving seed that's planted. Remember that? The parable of the sower. And in Luke 8.15, He says, But the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. When Paul says, if you hold fast the word, when Jesus says the heart that bears fruit upon hearing the word is the one that holds it fast, the word means to entrench, to implant, to deeply take possession of. What happens with a seed that goes into the good soil? It doesn't just sit there. It begins to sprout and grow and bloom and blossom and bear fruit. It changes. And it changes the environment around it. And that's what he's talking about. If you hold fast the Word, it should change you. If you take possession, you own this. Wednesday night, Paul talked about my gospel. And we we said, man, do you call it my gospel? Is it your gospel or is it the gospel? Or that other guy's gospel? This is mine. Take hold of it. Hold it fast. Allow the gospel to be seated and rooted into your heart such that it changes everything about how you go through your daily life. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It's good news that will not fail. Man, that's some birthday card. Take it out. Read it. Memorize it. Know it. Live by it. Good tidings of great joy. The Gospel is a message of hope. Unless you believed in vain. Paul answers the question of once saved, always saved right there. Unless you believed in vain. I believe once you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you are saved. You cannot lose your salvation. It is solid. It is secure. You are held fast in the hand of God. You are saved. Unless you believed in vain. What do you mean? I mean, unless it was empty words. Maybe it was just about religion. You said yes to the gospel because that's what your family does. That's what your church teaches. That's where you went. That's kind of the social thing. We just all hit a certain age and we said yes. Empty words. The person who is saved in the heart is always saved. The person who believes in vain is the person who never really got saved, never really believed it, never really trusted in it. Wait a minute. So it's possible to believe in vain? Tragically, yes. Words only. Empty faith that never permeates the heart never gets in and takes root. Again, it's receiving the card, but it's not opening it. Leaving it in the stack for another time. Or even opening the card and reading it and saying, oh, that's nice, and setting it aside and immediately forgetting it and having no, no impact in your life whatsoever. It means nothing to you. Jesus said in Luke 8.13, also in the parable of the sower, He said, those on rocky soil are those who when they hear, they receive the word with joy and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Why? Because the belief was empty words. Psalm 106 verse 12 gives us the example of Israel in the wilderness. Coming right off the heels of the glorious experience at the Red Sea, 
And then the writer says, Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. And they did not wait on his counsel. Empty words. Is that you? Is that you here this morning? Did you maybe... I don't know, I became a Christian when I was 13 years old, maybe someone might say. I went down, I said the prayer, did the thing, you know, and then I really haven't been back since. Is that you? I said I believed once, but I, you know, I don't know. Life's been a real struggle ever since. I don't, I don't know. Have you ever received the gospel with great joy, only to be discouraged, let down, and led away? Listen. Open the card again. Read it one more time. Listen to the message of good news. Hear it today. Don't let the enemy deceive you into looking at yourself and saying, well, I had my chance back then. No, you didn't. You missed it back then. You can get it right now. The Gospel is the message of good news and the news is still good. Hear this morning. The news is still good. Okay, Rick, you're talking about this gospel. What is the gospel? I'd like to be able to articulate it. I'm just not sure how. Alright, Paul helps us. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. It's so simple. Let me make it even more simple for you. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I asked you, and I may, what's the gospel? Can you immediately say it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you can remember that, you've got the gospel. If you can embrace that, you have a hope. And you have a message to share. And you can expound on it and explain it more. But it is very simple. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Really, it's two simple tenets. Not three. To make up the gospel. And I will say to you all, I believe that every follower of Jesus Christ ought to have this down. Ought to be able to instantly, when, when asked, what does the gospel say? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you say that with me this morning? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've got the gospel. That is the message of good news, the message of great joy, the glad tidings. Embedded in the heart is the message that saves, and there are just two aspects of it. Jesus died and was buried, and He raised on the third day. And it's so important. Oh, and by the way, Paul said twice, according to the Scriptures. Jesus died according to the Scriptures, and was buried... And he raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you Bible students know he's not referring to the Gospels when he says the Scriptures. They weren't even in circulation yet. Some weren't even written yet. I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament, beginning with those, wasn't in circulation in the church. When Paul says... Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Scriptures that they had. 
the ancient Hebrew prophets spanning history, running the gamut of the prophets from Moses to Malachi. Let me give you some examples. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 15 and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Eve was deceived. Talked about that last week, didn't we? Adam sinned. And in the fallout, God is there. He's speaking to them. And He says to the serpent in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise Him on the heel. He? Yeah, the seed of woman. But woman doesn't have a seed. Right? Women have an egg. Man provides the seed. God right here is speaking what some have called the Proto-Evangelicum or First Gospel. The first indication of what would happen of the Gospel message that suddenly, miraculously, a woman would be found with a seed by the Holy Spirit and that seed is Jesus Christ. And that seed, that seed (laughs) will be bruised on the heel If we were to look closely at the heels of Jesus, I would imagine bruises all over them from the nail that pierced His feet. And yet, He shall bruise you on the head. It is Jesus who crushes the head of the serpent. So right at the very beginning, the Gospel is already starting to find its way into the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 5. I really wasn't going to do this, but I did it first service, so i got to do it for you too. This just, I love this. This is one of those nuggets, one of those hidden treasures in Scripture that are so fantastic and so exciting and just fun. Check this out. Genesis chapter 5, you might read it and go, okay, descendants of Adam. Well, that's boring. Let's move on to chapter 6 in the flood, right? Yeah. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. You Bible students have heard this, ten names of those generations, Adam and Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, the first Hawaiian, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Ten names. And they're all listed out there, and it's important. It's important history. It's important understanding to look back and see the generations between Adam and Noah. And the Gospel is right there. What do you mean? If you take all ten names, look at their meaning. Take the meaning of each name and write it out as a single sentence. This is how it would read. Man, appointed, mortal, sorrowful. The blessed God shall come down, teaching. Dying He shall send to the despairing comfort or rest. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 5. The Gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, my friends, is throughout the Scriptures. Oh, but I'm just warming up. Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Often called the Psalm of the Cross because it is so explicit in describing exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. And it begins, Psalm 22, verse 1. The book of Psalms is somewhere in the middle of your Bibles roughly, so you can find it there. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Matthew 27, 45. Keep your finger in Psalm 22 and just listen to this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. 
About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew describes it. Mark records it. Mark 15.34 as well. That Jesus spoke these very words. Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Gasping for every breath. On the verge of His death. And He's quoting Scripture. Why Jesus? I'm sorry to say this, but if I was on the cross, I doubt a verse would be the first thing on my mind. Maybe it would. But this one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus quoting a Bible verse on the cross? Well, He was experiencing it. But I believe it's more. I believe Jesus was pointing us to Psalm 22. That's what the rabbis did. They didn't have chapter and verse like we do. And so if they wanted to point someone to a passage, we're going to take as our text today, my God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? And then all the students of the rabbi would say, oh, okay, Psalm 22. And they, you know, they would turn to that section of Scripture. They could follow that part of the scroll. They would know where to turn based on the heading, which was the first verse. Jesus, in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is telling everybody from the cross, read Psalm 22. Go to Psalm 22. Because what you're seeing right now was talked about a thousand years ago by David in Psalm 22. Look at it. Psalm 22, verse 7. And we could do the whole psalm we have in the past. We won't this morning. But verse 7, he says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. Because He delights in Him. David wrote that. A thousand years later, Matthew 27, verse 41 says, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking and saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now. If He delights in Him, for He said, I am the Son of God. And they sneered and they wagged their heads at Him. And they did exactly what David described. The death of Jesus as the Scriptures foretold. Man, Psalm 22. Look down at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. An evil, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. It's like an historical reference. And those pagan Romans at the foot of the cross, rolling dice, playing games for his clothing, dividing it up exactly as the psalmist prophesied. They weren't like, hey, let's fulfill a prophecy here. They were just doing what they did. But David proclaimed it a thousand years ahead of time. Because the death of Jesus is spoken of in the Scriptures. And the fact that they pierced his hands and feet... That line is absolutely shocking. The Persians invented crucifixion in the 7th century B.C. David wrote of the crucifixion in the 10th century B.C., over 300 years before it was ever invented. The piercing of hands and feet was not something done. It would have been a very strange thing for David to write. Not understandable in his day. Pierced hands and feet, that's weird. They have parlors that do that. I don't understand. What is that talking about? 
And then the Persians come along and they invent it. Rome perfected it as a means of execution. Oh, there's so much more in Psalm 22. I will leave that to you. Skip ahead a couple of books to Isaiah. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Isaiah. Chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is that passage of Scripture which is skipped over in Jewish synagogues today. Because it is too explicit. It is too hard to explain away what Isaiah prophesied 750 B.C. So over 700 years before Jesus and also prior to the Persian development of crucifixion and Isaiah writes in verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. Jesus was scourged, His back torn up. Jesus was nailed to the cross, pierced through. And why? Well, Paul tells us why. Back in 1 Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what you also received, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I don't know that we understand fully the depth of that when we think about sin. Oh, I sinned today. I took a couple of pins home from the office. You know? Oh, I sinned. I I lied about something. I deceived someone. And yeah, that is sin. Sure. I sinned. I lost my temper and got all angry with my family and I shouldn't have done that. You know, I sinned. I had one too many drinks. I sinned. I, I walked into the pot store. I sinned. My friends, we have no concept how brutally ugly sin truly is. If if you want to get a little sense of how ugly sin is, you look at Isaiah 52 verse 14 that says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. What does that mean? It means Jesus was so beaten up on the cross, He was unrecognizable. His face black and blue and swollen from all the poundings that He got before He ever went to the cross. Torn up by the scourging that Isaiah talks about in verse 5. If you want to understand the depravity and the depth of sin, your sin, my sin, you look at Jesus on the cross. That is the outcome of sin. That's what sin looks like to God. It doesn't get any uglier than that. And so when we downplay sin, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone to that movie, but <laughs> whatever. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I, you know, I know it was sinful. And we would never act that way about sin if we were standing before the cross. He died for our sins. According to the Scriptures. My sin on Him And it's brutal, dreadful, painful, unearned good news. Good news. I've asked you before, think about the worst thing that you have ever done in your entire life. The good news is, washed away by the Gospel. Washed away by the blood of Jesus, if you will believe in Him, if you'll just receive Him as your Lord and Savior. My sin, your sin. 
Isaiah also, again, wrote this before Persia instigated crucifixion. Look down in verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Cut off. That's an idiom in the Hebrew for dead, killed, murdered. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. In other words, we deserve the cross. Jesus took the cross on Himself. Jesus died according to the Scriptures. And and Jesus was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. All my life I heard these three things. See, I was one of those. It's more rare, I guess, these days to have been raised going to church. I was. I'm thankful every day for it because if I wasn't, I would be a mess. And I remember hearing this. I mean, it was drilled into me. The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So I had it down even at a young age. I didn't get it, but I knew it. And the one that bothered me was the burial. I mean, dead is dead, right? So the death and the resurrection, that's the gospel. What's the point of the burial? Why is that so important? Because the burial is the certainty of death. The absolute assurance that yes, in fact, Jesus died. The burial of Christ obliterates every cynical view of the resurrection. What do you mean? Cynical views, lame views like grave robbing, the body disappeared because his disciples actually came and got it. That was propagated from the first century and has continued even said today. Well, yeah, his followers just overcame all the Roman soldiers in the sealed tomb and they rolled back the stone and got his body out of there. And then they stayed in Jerusalem and started a church. The only one that I think is dumber is the swoon theory. Have you heard this one? Swoon theory. Jesus on the cross passed out. He swooned. He wasn't actually dead. He just, you know, passed out and fell into a coma for three days. And then he got better. It's like a Monty Python line. I got better. I'm feeling happy. What is this? Sealed in this tomb. Listen, he was flogged with the flagellum which had chunks of bone and metal and, and stone wrapped into the cat of nine tails, lashed on the back and then dragged across the back so that by the time the flogging was done, there was very little back left. And then hung up on the cross, hands and feet nailed into the cross, and as he bled out from all of those places, a crown of thorns had already been shoved down on his head, so he's bleeding out from there. He almost died in the garden... So heavy was the weight of taking on the sin of the world and that decision before Him. And add to that, the countless friends, enemies, and non-biased observers stood there and watched Him take His last breath. They witnessed Him expiring on the cross. Mark 15.37, Jesus uttered a loud cry. You know what it was. Tetelestai, which is, It is finished! And He breathed His last. And we're told that at that point the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, ripped wide apart. I love the significance of that. But then in Mark 15.39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. His death 
was even legally verified by Rome itself. How so? John 19.34 One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Medically speaking, blood and water surging out of a wound like that would indicate a burst heart. That if you wanted to say, how did Jesus actually die on the cross? It was his heart exploded. Blood and water come pouring out. The soldiers say he's dead. We don't have to break his legs. And so they didn't. They broke the legs of both the other men because that's how you got men off the cross. If they're not dead yet, break their legs and they hang down. They can't breathe. They asphyxiate and they die. Jesus didn't die that way. In fact, he was in complete control of the moment of his death when he breathed his last. So the sword goes in. The blood, the water pours out. John would even write later that, that these three, these three testify the blood, the water, and the spirit. That in fact, yes, Jesus died, but the burial sealed the deal. The burial sealed the deal, literally. John 19.39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pounds weight. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, which was different than that of the Gentiles. Gentiles, pagans, they would either cremate, or they would basically go in and embalm, they would take out... All the, drain out all the residual blood and then they'd take out all the organs and take a mixture of sawdust or something else and they would fill up the body sew it back up stick it in the grave that dude's not coming back and that was the way that they embalmed well that's not the way the Jews did it because the Jews believed in resurrection so they wanted to encase the body as best they could to protect it for future resurrection. They believed in bodily resurrection, something we've been talking about last Wednesday and this coming Wednesday. The way they did it was they took strips of cloth, same type of cloth, by the way, that little baby Jesus was wrapped up in in the manger. Linen strips. And they would take a strip and they would dip it in this mixture of spices and aloe and myrrh, And then they would wrap a part of the body and take another strip and dip it and wrap and dip and wrap and they would encase the entire body up to the neck with this and then they would put a burial shroud over the head. This would harden into a shell, literally uh, like a cocoon, an encasement of the body. And I think it's fascinating. I can't prove this because I didn't see this with my own eyes, but when John and Peter raced to the tomb on that Sunday morning, when they heard that, that the stone was rolled away and then Jesus isn't there, they went running down there. Remember, John got there first and then Peter comes in and blows right by John and goes into the tomb and he's looking around. And then John 19 tells us, John writes, he went in and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed Jesus had resurrected. Why? I think that it's because he looked in and he saw the shell, but there was no body in it. We know the face wrapping was folded up and set to the side. But the linen encasement that was lying there, very likely was still lying there in the shape of Jesus' body, but there was no body in it. No body home. Just the cocoon. They were so certain of his death that they wrapped him in the way that you wrap dead people and they put him into the tomb and then they rolled the stone in front of it. Matthew 27, uh, 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it as John described and then laid it in his own new tomb 
which he had hewn out in the rock, he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. So the stone's in front of it. Well, then the Jewish leaders, you know the story, they went to Pilate and they said, his, his guys are going to come steal the body. Because they keep saying he's going to rise. So Pilate said, do whatever you have to do. So they took a regiment of soldiers, which is anywhere from 4 to 16, and had them stand guard in front of the tomb. They put the seal of Rome on the tomb, which would be on the rock and then on the outside of the tomb itself and would be connected. And if that seal was broken, the soldiers guarding the tomb, it would be their lives. They made sure to seal the deal. Jesus died according to the scriptures and he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Where do the scriptures teach that he was raised on the third day? Where do the scriptures even talk about any of this? I could go on and on. Genesis 22. Genesis 22 where God calls Abram. And he says, take now, Genesis 22 verse 2, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. First word, first use of the word love in the Bible, by the way, is Genesis 22 verse 2. And it's the love between a father and his beloved son. Take now your son whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Same mountain where Jesus was crucified. Some think the same location. Abraham goes up there, takes up Isaac. Isaac, his, his kid, you know. We always think of Isaac as a little boy who had no say in the matter. Isaac was probably 30 at the time. Goes up there with dad. They have the wood for the sacrifice. He knows they're going up to sacrifice. They build an altar. The wood's there. Isaac says, Dad, there's wood. Uh, there's an altar for sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? And I think Abraham, with shaky voice, said, God will provide a lamb. God will provide. And he took his son Isaac and bound him. Fathers, think about this. Laid him out on the wood. Raised the knife above his head to kill his only son, whom he loved. And God said, enough. Good news, Abraham. Not today. And Abraham looks and there's a ram stuck in the thicket. And so he named that place, God will provide Jehovah Jireh. That place was ever named, God will provide. And in the day of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God did provide a lamb in Jesus' death. And his burial. And his resurrection. You know what's remarkable about about the story of Abraham and Isaac? I just love it. Abraham comes back down the mountain by himself. Where's Isaac? We don't see Isaac again in the narrative of Genesis until he's coming for his bride. Man, think about this. The scriptures proclaim death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And Abraham believed the whole reason why Abraham would draw the knife on his own son. There's one reason the Bible reveals to us why he did that. He believed in resurrection. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which He also received Him back as a type. Isaac, a type, a picture of Jesus. Isaac, the son of Abraham, the beloved son, like the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ. It's all throughout the Bible. 
Jonah. Jonah lived out the gospel in a scaled back way. He was swallowed up, (laughs) hook, line, and sinker. He had the most interesting Mediterranean cruise of anybody in history. And there are people, in fact, as recently as Friday, I heard this, I was watching The Five, some of you know about that show, I was home for lunch, I watched a few minutes of of this show called The Five, and on it, uh, what's her name, Dana Perino, they were talking about at the end of this show, uh, what is their favorite thing that was lost from childhood that they wish they could have back? Favorite item? And Dana Perino said, oh, it was our picture Bible. I had a picture Bible and had all these great illustrations in it. And she said, my favorite one was the picture of Jonah uh, cooking up a little food inside the belly of the fish. <laughs> and Greg Gutfeld sitting over there went, yeah, that, that didn't happen. I still maintain that never happened. I get it for a non-believer to say that, that it's just a fish story. You know, Jonah, that whole thing, it's just an allegorical tale. No Christian who truly believes in Jesus can say that. Well, I'm a Christian and I don't believe Jonah was a true story. Jesus did. Was he a liar? Jesus called Jonah a prophet. Jesus referred specifically to the story of Jonah being swallowed up in the whale three days and three nights and then puked up on the shore. He he referred to that story in reference to the one sign that would be given the evil and wicked generation in the first century, and I would say ever since. Matthew 12, 38, the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign. He answered, he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves after a sign. No sign is going to be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And numerous other prophecies reveal that the Scriptures support the death, the burial, the resurrection, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible points to that ultimate point. That ultimate outcome. That that ultimate issue is Jesus The death that He died for our sin. The burial that proved the death. And the resurrection that gives us the very hope that we have. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the spoils with the strong. Well, wait a minute, Isaiah. You said He was going to be dead. Yeah, and after His death, because He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And Isaiah goes on to talk about His posterity and His future days. This was always God's plan from the very first day. And David wrote in Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not going to leave me in the grave, Lord, nor will you allow your Holy One, Messiah, to undergo decay. Decay. Interesting, the ancient Hebrews absolutely believed that the body didn't really begin to corrupt or decay for three days. Three days. That was Jewish popular belief. On the third day, the Bible tells us, Abraham and Isaac went up Mount Moriah on the third day. On the third day, the whale spit up Jonah on the shore. 
Hosea chapter 6 verse 2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we might live before Him. Matthew 16.21, from that day Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. Why, Lord? Why is the third day so important? Why does this matter? Because, Because on the third day after the Passover was the feast of first fruits. On that Sunday, while Jews who are in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover feast, that sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Christ our Passover, on Sunday, feast of first fruits, a glorious day of good tidings, the feast of first fruits, and Paul down in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He goes on in verse 23, he says, But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God. It's marvelous. Even the third day is proclaimed in the scriptures. The gospel has been verified and prophesied and satisfied. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, the, say it with me, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Man, tell people about it. Tell them. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. Nothing else matters more. Well, we can talk about all the doctrinal issues in Scripture, and we can study to show ourselves approved, and we should, but the gospel is paramount. The gospel is our message. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you got up and preparing to go to work thought, today's the day I'm going to tell him, I'm going to share with her that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. When was the last time someone looked at you and said, what's so good about it? And opened the door for you to share your testimony, your witness of why it is good news for you. Christians, I'm talking to Christians, this is mega gladness. Good tidings of great joy. Do you believe it? Have you received it? See, the Corinthian church had. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2 said, the gospel which you've received... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.11, it talks about the gospel, which you believed, and yet Paul comes right back and says, i got to make known this to you again. I'm going to repeat myself again. Why, Paul, if they already believed it and already received it? Listen. Some at Corinth, and I think some in the church today, believed it and received it theologically. But it never got in personally. I mean, stop and think about it. If it gets in personally, then why don't we share it more often? If it really has mattered to you, changed your life, if we really fully embrace the gospel, why would we do anything else with our lives? And I'm not saying quit your jobs and become pastors. Please don't. That would be the worst thing to do in the world. Not because it's a bad job, don't get me wrong. No, your job is the place that you are to take the gospel. 
your family, your friends, your social setting, your workplace, wherever you are in the world. Why don't we take the gospel? Oh, we believe it theologically. We come to church and we go, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, preach it, Rick. And then we walk out the door and it's not personal. Which again is why Christians are depressed, why Christians are despairing, why Christians are worried, and why Christians are ineffective with the bringing of mega gladness to a very sorrowful world. A world that is terrified. I mean, I know Friday night for me, when we heard about the shootings, it just was surreal. Bad enough that it would be in Charlotte, North Carolina, but Burlington? I mean, my reaction was probably like many of yours, just... (laughs) And then I remembered, i got to go preach good news on Sunday morning. And then God said, yeah, because there's nothing more important for you to preach. There is nothing more profound than the good news of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Has it gotten into your heart? Brothers and sisters, we've got to open the card. We've got to read the message and then we've got to hold fast to it. Paul said, Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's then the moment of your claim and, and now and forevermore if you've received and believed Jesus resurrected. Saved. And you know what that means? That means He's here. Right now. This morning. If Jesus resurrected from the dead, then He's here. And it means He's with you. It means He will not forsake you. As He said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. How do you live as a millennial in this generation? How do you do that? Because I live, Jesus says. You will live. Millennials, young people, you don't have to live in this generation in fear and terror and sorrow and depression and darkness. You have good news. Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. He's real. He's present. The gospel is truth. Hold fast to it. Give it away. It is our hope and our salvation. And Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That is good news. Father, you have given us a message unlike any other. Nothing compares. <laughs> Lord, when I think about other religions and what they offer, they offer rules and regulations. When I think about other lifestyles, they offer things to do. Have-tos and shoulds and oughts. Our only ought is that we ought to believe the gospel. There has never been, Lord, gladder tidings than this. And I thank You this morning once again for the gospel of Jesus. 
For the good news that, that permeates the heart and the soul and the body of, of those who follow you, who believe. Holy Spirit, permeate us all this morning. Fill us up to overflowing with the good news. And this week, while everybody's talking about all the bad news, Father, would you light us up? Fill our faces with joy. Help us to to be bringers of, of the glad tidings, of the message that is so real to us and so true. Lord, by Your Spirit, move and motivate us just to speak these words. And Jesus, for Your death, Your burial, Your resurrection, we praise and glorify Your name. And we will forever, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.